This is the Education Gadfly Show. He's a bad guy. Do, 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 do. Anyway, something like that. Bad guy. I'm going to YouTube it. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming my special guest for this week, Mike McGee. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Nice to be here. Yeah, Mike, as you all recall from previous episodes, is the CEO of Chiefs for Change. Also joining us, our co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike. Hello, hello, David. Oh, yeah, this is going to be tr- tricky, isn't it? I'm between it? two mics again, yeah. Uh, between two mics. Oh, David. Hey, David, how's the sleep going? The baby letting you get any sleep these days? Uh, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take that as a no. Okay, good. Well, Mike, it's great to have you here. I believe it was about a year ago that you were on the show for the same purpose because it is National School Choice Week. Happy National School Choice Week. Yes, to you as well. Yeah, so let's talk about how the state of school choice is going this week and this year on Ed Reform Update. Mike, so you get to work with folks around the country, uh, state superintendents, local district superintendents as well. You are everywhere around the country all the time. What are you seeing? I mean, the, the general sense that I think we hear from the media is that school choice, especially charter schools, is getting a pretty good licking right now, uh, especially from the left. Been a challenging time. Is that what you're seeing as well? Or are there other reasons for optimism? You know, I do think it's a challenging time politically. And, you know, we, we see that in the impact on smart, innovative new school ideas um, that require a charter and the pace at which they're being approved in states across the country. But on the other hand, I think there really are reasons for optimism. As I look across Chiefs for Change membership, which now serves over 7 million students and have conversations with the leaders in our community who lead those systems. And one of the things I'd say that's very encouraging to me is that I see big systems leaders really getting back to the question of why when it comes to charters. And I think it is the right time and a necessary time to have that conversation. Why are we chartering schools in the first place? Because when you have a hotly contested political issue, questions like that get very confused. And one of the things that leaders can do is speak with a lot of moral clarity on questions like that. And as I look at a district like San Antonio, Antonio, for instance, and and San Antonio is not alone in this regard, but they're a very good example. That is the question that San Antonio is not just asking, but answering. And I think this should be much more prominently a part of the national conversation right now. And what are you implying? Is it basically that what? It's about the kids charter these schools because we need uh, schools that serve kids well that it shouldn't be about the politics. I mean, that sort of tone, which of course I agree with. Uh, Actually, no. Um, You know, and I think this is what's really interesting. You know, one of the things that's dawned on me this year is to say parents should be able to choose between schools, which I certainly believe in my bones. um, And my whole K-12 career has been dedicated to that principle. Doesn't really answer the question of why you need to open a new school. And this is, I think, the question that we need to answer if we want to charter more schools and expand the charter school sector. And so there's three answers I think that San Antonio is providing that are very interesting. One is San Antonio has used chartering to attract national partners with resources. And if you look at their partnership with KIPP San Antonio, I think that's a good example. And KIPP San Antonio is led by Alan Smith, who's a former district leader and who really understands how districts work. And so that has enabled a you know, a new kind of partnership there that is, I think, 
going to be very positive for kids in San Antonio. But one of the things that um, national partners can sometimes do, not always, but sometimes, is attract young people to teach and lead. And in communities, and we have many of them in our Chiefs for Change network that are experiencing teacher shortages, that's a potential reason to charter, that you can use it as part of a strategy to attract talented young people to come to your community as educators. Second, I think we really can use chartering, and San Antonio certainly is, and many of our members are, to inspire local educators to design and lead. As we all know, district systems have lots and lots of rules and regulations that have grown up over the years, often for good reasons, but that make it very difficult for individual educators to take their idea for what school should look like and put it into practice. And chartering can give them that opportunity. These are people from the community who've been teaching and leading schools in the community for a long time, and you can use charters to empower them. And then lastly, and this is the one I think that to me needs the largest and the most honest conversation, is chartering can reimagine school zones and school communities, and you can use it for that purpose. We are more segregated than we have ever been in the United States by race and economic class since the heyday of desegregation. It's an enormous problem. If you read Rucker Johnson's book, Children of the Dream, he makes a very compelling research-based case that when students of different racial and ethnic and economic backgrounds go to school together, it has profound impacts on learning for all students. And yet, traditional district school zones make that very, very difficult, if not impossible. And when you look at charter networks like Citizens of the World Charter School, or Blackstone Valley Prep, which is a network that I helped to found in Rhode Island, one of the ways to think about what they did is they reimagined school zones, not just the design of schools, but the enrollment zone for that school so that students could go to school together who in no other place on earth except in that school would have ever met. And I think that's profound. So, you know, all of those would be ways that we could change the conversation about charters, help to answer this question of why we need to charter new schools in the first place. And I I think it would be very, very positive. I would typically push back on on a few of the things you said, just in terms of whether the evidence is that we are as segregated as ever. I mean, I think that it's complicated, right? Because we have so fewer white students in our system than we did, say, you know, 25, 50, 75 years ago. Uh, What you see in a lot of places is just, you know, that, uh, so the way that we measure these things uh, matters matters and, and maybe has changed. But still, that to be said, as you know, Mike, I am certainly a big fan of these diverse by design charter schools and, yeah. and, uh, and I've been to Blackstone Valley Prep and actually Fordham is, uh, is about to authorize a uh, Citizens of the World school in Cincinnati. So uh, oh, we are exciting. on board with all that. You know, just so that uh, we, we get into a little bit of controversy here, let me ask the two of you. <laughs> you know, one big to- issue in the last few weeks has been the Supreme Court oral arguments a few weeks ago. In the Espinoza case, this is a question about whether the Blaine amendments on the books in many states are constitutional or not. That when, when they basically say that states, you know, are that state provisions that say that no state money shall go to religious institutions, including religious schools. And the argument is that this is basically religious discrimination; that it's violating the uh, the free exercise clause of the Constitution. Now, this has mostly been discussed in terms of vouchers, in terms of right scholarships. But as uh, some of us have been pointing out on Twitter, you know, it does appear. If if you, the court comes down and says that you cannot basically discriminate against a religious institution on the basis of religion when giving out public services and subsidies, then 
you know, imagine this. If a religious school applies for a charter anywhere in the country and they have a great proposal and otherwise it would be uh, approved, that the state or the authorizer would have no grounds to deny that charter school application just because it's religious. So, in other words, uh, we may be looking at religious charter schools in the not-so-distant future. This would be another reason to charter is to say, well, look, you you would allow this greater variety of schools in the public sector that we haven't been able to have before and that parents would want. So, Boy, Mike, I, you pulled that controversy out of thin air. I, I, what congratulations. Are you about? Oh, come on. Give me a break. This is for real. I so had the all these thoughtful is, things to say about, oh, you know, diverse on, by design come charters. On, come on. And, Here's a question, I guess, is... is I mean, put aside the the legal question of whether uh, this thinking is real. Yeah, let's put it aside because I can't comment on that. (laughs) I think it's for real. Watch this. Would this be a good thing for the charter school movement or is this going to splinter the charter school movement? And any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, here's what I would say, not to not to break news on your podcast, but uh, I would say that this is a, just another example for me of the fact that this is the right time to be having a bigger conversation about what public school should look like in the U.S. and why, it, and just as importantly, why it looks the way it looks right now. So as we think about things like the, the historic backdrop of the Blaine Amendment, you know, there is a history within American public school of discriminating against religious minorities and of imagining public school, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, that period just after the turn of the 19th century as an assimilation vehicle. And so I guess my point would be, as we think about the history of something like, for instance, Catholic schooling in America, there's a lot of nuance there that we should talk about. And then the second thing is, we have an opportunity now to think, to, to approach these big challenging questions that we have in public education with a much more global perspective. And one of the things that I've certainly learned from someone like Ashley Berner, for instance, at Johns Hopkins University is when we look at the, you know, European social democracies that uh, folks on the political left in the U.S. tend to know and love. They do not approach public school the way that we do, and they don't equ- they don't approach this question of private schooling the way that we do. So that doesn't lead directly to a recommendation about what we should do, but it's well worth thinking about what school systems in other parts of the world that are doing a better job, frankly, with uh, most kids than we are. You know how they are structuring and organizing public education for themselves. So that sounds like an endorsement to me. I don't know. What do you? <laughs> and David, how about you, David? Are you on? Are you on board? Huh? I've been on, notably quiet. Uh, I or would you like to discriminate I against I'm, religion? I'm wearing my uh, Mike McGee intellectually curious person hat on that. Not not my official Chiefs for Change hat. I know, I know, I know. I gotcha. I gotcha, David. Briefly, <laughs> briefly, I need to think about this harder, Mike. It is tough to explain exactly why we should be in favor of something for charters or tolerate it, yeah. a certain amount of pluralism, or sorry, excuse me, for vouchers, um, yeah. and not do so for charters. Yeah. Having said that, yeah, I think it could splinter the movement, and I would have to think harder before really taking a position myself. All so, right. Okay. Well, the, think, think on it, everybody out there as well. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for coming back on the show. And again, happy National School Choice Week to you and to Appreciate yours. Appreciate it, Mike. I'll hope you'll come back again soon. Mike McGee, CEO of Chiefs for Change. Thanks for coming on the show. Anytime. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, uh, you know, I got to say, I just came back from Colorado with the family, which was pretty oh, nice. nice. And, and one of the best parts, there's so many great parts about being outside the bubble and uh, <laughs> in, uh, in real America. 
as they say, David. Uh, but we, uh, one of the best parts Who's was they? We, we showed up to the rental car place and what did I get? But I got to get a, this enormous Ram pickup truck. Wow. My sons right. were so excited. And of course you turn on the radio. It's a country station. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. It was, nice. It was you really had your Dukakis moment. It was like yeah. a, a cultural tourism. And did you leave it on the station is what we I wanted to did Because Nico is a huge country music <laughs> fan. Well, so so now I know. The, now I like it too. I got to say. Very cool. I have been missing out. Amber. Yes, you There's, have. There's some you great have. country music there out is. there. There's yeah. some There's great, also some and, terrible country music And now Nico was upset that the country music songs never win the big awards at the what is up with I know, seriously. It's because there's a country music awards. Well, they have categories, though. <laughs> so big that it's, right. it has right. its own awards. And, and Billie Eilish, you guys excited about Billie Eilish? Uh-huh. I don't really know. I him. now know who oh, she is. Yeah. Oh, it's. I'm, a, I'm like him. Oh, she, this is clearly how I am out of the league. Oh my I'm, god. I'm really that bad. I know. But she's 18, and she and her brother were homeschooled. Why are we not talking more about that? Wow. I don't know. Her brother, who's a producer, her producer, oh. basically. You know, and they've been making music, and they got famous on you know, okay. as teenagers on YouTube or whatever. And, what song does this person sing? Yeah. What song does she's a bad guy? Do, 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 do. Anyway, something bad like guys? that. Bad guy. Right. I'm going to YouTube it. Gotta, gotta check it out. David knows it. I mean, what? David? I just what? wish we had video for that. <laughs> I knew it. You knew I knew he was going to do it as soon as I asked him. Okay, but I digress. What you got for us, Amber? Oh, man. We got a new study out in the AEFP journal that examines the impact of subject area specialization in elementary schools. Huh. You might be interested in this. Ooh, I do like this. Um, but it's kind of not really what you think of a specialization, mm-hmm. but I'll get, on, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. It's less common in elementary schools, as we know, than high schools, but the study dives into the extent that it happens in elementary schools and its impact. This is Kevin Bastian and his colleagues. And they asked whether elementary teachers specialize, whether it increases teacher effectiveness, and whether it improves school-level achievement. They used data from K-5 teachers in North Carolina public schools from 2011 through 2016. They got about 55,000 teachers. They focus on grades 4 through 5 mainly because that's where you can access um examine value added to student achievement. They use this end of course grade exams, uh, end of grade, they call them. They define generalist. Now, this is a sticking point for me. And it was one sentence in the study. And I'm like, whoa, they define generalist as those teaching three or four subject areas and specialist as those teaching one or two subject areas. So it's not whether they have a master's degree in the content area. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's some kind of important. Mm-hmm. They find that using that definition, specialization is still rare in our early elementary grades and more prevalent in the upper elementary grades. Mm-hmm. So specifically 25% of fourth grade teachers and 37% of fifth grade teachers specialize. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they teach one or two subjects. I mean, I assume, we assume that this means what, like math, math and, and science, science and maybe. reading and social studies. Okay, That's kind right. of the yes. convention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and look, there's been arguments for a long time that if you just, this should help that if you have put your best reading teachers just to focus on reading and your mm-hmm. best math teachers just focus on math, mm-hmm. it make a big difference. Yep. They find that schools assign relatively more effective teachers to specialize. So now we're going to get into this relationship, okay? Mm-hmm. They find that first-time specialists, because I guess they go back and forth using this definition, mm-hmm. have lagged value added that is 20% of a standard deviation higher in math. The comparable figure for reading is 11% of a standard deviation. Teachers with high value added are much more likely to specialize. Experienced teachers are also more likely to specialize in math. And then they use this teacher fixed effects model for their main analysis, which again accounts for this underlying level of quality, as well as a host of student, classroom, teacher, and school level controls. Mm -hmm. And their key finding is that math and reading specialists are less effective as specialists than they were as generalist. Mm. 
For instance, math. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Math specialization is associated with a decrease of 4% of a standard de- deviation to adjusted average student achievement. They go on, though, to find that generalists taught an average of 27 unique students during the school year. And those teaching math only taught an average of 58 unique students. Mm-hmm. So then they test the relationship between students taught and teacher effectiveness, omitting the specialization part of it, okay. okay, and find that a one standard deviation increase in the number of students taught mm-hmm. is linked to decreases mm-hmm. in teacher effectiveness in math and reading. Interesting. Because that's the trade-off, right? That's if you specialize, you have It looks that way. Right. Moreover, they look mm-hmm. to see if these adverse effects are just short-term. Mm-hmm. And that maybe the, it bounces back, but they find that the negative effects of specialization mm-hmm. persist after multiple years. All that said, now it gets a little more complicated. Now, the story in science is different. I have no idea why. Science specialists are more effective than their generalist peers in the same school. It's not due to them teaching fewer kids. Right. So that's curious. Mm-hmm. They dig into whether, finally, almost at the end, they dig into whether results differ by teacher experience and other variables. They conclude that regardless of experience, student demographics, or school urbanicity, Teachers are less effective as specialists than they are as generalists. Mm-hmm. Finally, they find that one standard deviation increase in specialization does not predict higher levels of aggregate achievement, which again, your point, mm-hmm. Mike, it suggests that the adverse effects of specialization for individual teachers are balanced out by assigning more effective teachers to specialize. So in the end, it's kind of a wash. It's kind of a wash. <laughs> Ooh, oh my that's goodness. It. <laughs> Except for science. So, Except for science. Now, so, I mean, this is, this is interesting. I mean, I, you know, I've certainly over the years thought, why don't we do more of this specialization? And now there's been some studies saying, well, because there is this trade-off and it may be about relationships. You now have more kids. You don't have a strong mm-hmm. relationship when the teacher has the same group of kids all day long. Right. Those poor teachers. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know those 25 uh, oh kids. God. But you know them and, and that that may, may help. Here's another question. So maybe if specialization actually doesn't help, maybe we should not specialize in middle school. Right. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, should maybe. we take it the other direction? Yeah, maybe <laughs> we should. I mean, right? Right. I mean, the argument for specialization once you get to middle school and high school is that, well, at that point, you really need to know the subject matter to, right. be able to teach it, you know, and to be able to expect a teacher to be able to do both higher level math and, you know, English language arts and social studies. I don't know. I don't know either. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think we have to be careful about generalizing here, right? Because I would not have wanted to teach calculus, right? Yeah. But I did feel like many of the kids that were trying to help, I felt like I could help them in math, right? And I'm not really a math teacher, right? I didn't. Certainly in sixth, seventh and eighth grade. I mean, when we're worried about, you know, all this other literature about kids feeling lost and, Mm -hmm. you know, not having relations, you know, you go, I've watched this with, with my son is, you know, you obviously you go from elementary school to middle school and suddenly you go from one teacher to seven. And, you know, I mean, there's, it's definitely a a challenge. Those kids feel like they're, they don't know their teachers don't have that connection, that relationship anymore. And so could somebody not really teach all the subjects in sixth or seventh or eighth grade? I don't know. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I, maybe. I'm curious, uh, listeners, anybody know of a middle school out there that uh, goes in this other direction? Has a, has a teacher teach everything? Yeah. I'd be curious about that. Let's yeah, just yeah. I out. mean, but really, what is the, t- I don't know, the teacher prep for middle school teaching looks like anymore. Like, does it, yeah. be, you know what I mean? Does it begin to be I think it's sometimes there's overlap. I think that there's like elementary school rules and there's high school rules and then middle school, maybe sometimes you can have either an elementary certificate or a high school Yeah, because you get K-8, you get K-8, right, Dave? I mean, it's been a right. while since I've looked at this, but how these licenses <laughs> yeah. work. But I think you get K-8. I'm the wrong person to ask. I, license. Say, I think, I mean, I think there's a couple other dimensions we should consider though when we're thinking about relationships, right? Which is you can have a relationship by teaching all subjects or you can 
can have a relationship by teaching the same subject over multiple years, right? Yeah, so that's for example, I, you know, yeah. the small private school that I went to, right? We had the same math teacher for sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Mm, and by the end yeah. of eighth grade, like we knew him pretty well, yeah, right? right? Um, mm-hmm. Despite the fact that we only spent whatever it was, a quarter yeah. of the day with him. A similar point could be made about teacher turnover, right? Which is, it would be interesting to know, to sort of flesh out the relationship side of this, which in some ways is more interesting to me, yeah. right? Which mm-hmm. is, what are sort of the dimensions of having a relationship between a, a yeah. teacher and a student? And what are the easiest ways to strengthen those relationships, right? right. Do we go vertical or horizontal? And or- we think they matter at certain grades. I mean, we know these ninth grade academies, right? Because mm-hmm. that ninth grade year is so mm-hmm. pivotal where you have a cohort of teachers who keep a cohort of kids, mm-hmm. right? And sort of, you have multiple subject area teachers, five teachers, right? right? But they have those same cohort of kids. So they meet together and talk mm-hmm. about those kids. So there's different ways, I guess, to skin the cat, so to speak, in terms of how to try to maintain that relationship as the kids get older. All right. Very interesting. Thank you, Amber. You're welcome. That was a good one. <laughs> that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffin. <laughs> I'm Mike Petrilli, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org. 